Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 17. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode, which will be a solo episode, I will be talking about what I've learned, what I knew going into the book projects, what I learned from the book projects, and how that affected the finished product. But first, the only update I have, well, I have two updates this week. The first update is about the podcast itself. I had initially said that I was going to go to a monthly podcast because of the challenges with my schedule right now, since I've gone back to work for my alma mater. But I've been wrestling with that over the last few weeks because I still struggle to see how a monthly podcast can ever really gain traction. Weekly is definitely too much, but I'm going to continue to produce the show twice a month. So the second Monday and the fourth Monday will still be podcast episodes for the undetermined future, probably continuing until I quit doing a show. So there will be an episode on January the 23rd. This episode will actually be coming out January 9th. And then the other update is everybody I'm sure in the wrestling world is talking about how Vince McMahon forced himself back onto the board of directors of his company, World Wrestling Entertainment, after resigning in the summertime. It's too early to see what that's going to mean for the actual in-ring product or the show, but I can't see how this is anything but a negative as he stepped down in disgrace because of all of these uh, payments and NDAs that he had signed with former employees that he was involved in sometimes consensual sexual relations with. Uh, Some may not have been, you know, who knows, it's all been very murky. But one of the reasons I think that he was considering the retirement or retiring was because that even though they say all of these payments were made from his personal funds, there had to be some revised SEC filings because WWE is a publicly traded company. And I'm sure that those cases are not... If the SEC opened a case, which I'm sure they would have, I'm sure those cases have not been settled. So this could also throw all of that into chaos as well. So I just, overall, I think it's a very bad move for the company. It's probably a great move for Vince. For the shareholders in the short run, if there is a sale, it might be more profitable for them because the sales, the uh, shares of the stock went up on the news that they were preparing for a sale, and that's why he was coming back. Uh, 
but it's, I, I don't think it's a, a great thing for the company. But let's move on to some actual historical wrestling. So I've written now, I want to say, seven books on professional wrestling. I've written, I believe, eight combat sports history books. One of those is on bare-knuckle prize fighting. Since this show is dedicated to professional wrestling, I'm only going to briefly touch on that one. But the very first combat sports history book I wrote was The Life of William Muldoon. It's uh, William Muldoon. The Solid Man Conquers Physical Culture and Professional Wrestling because William Muldoon was really one of the, one of the, if not the first, one of the very first celebrity trainers in the United States. After he retired from his wrestling career, he went on to train very famous athletes, politicians, and the like. Going into that project, I knew almost nothing about William Muldoon. This was very early. I started blogging in 2013, and that's when I started. I was still going into the newspaper archives at my alma mater initially because newspapers.com did not have that great of a selection at first. At least that's my opinion of when I started doing it in 2013. And... I started doing using newspapers.com about six or seven years ago, and their collection just keeps getting better and better. It's much, much easier to be a researcher nowadays. But at that point in time, I knew little about Muldoon, and I had only been researching pro wrestling in that era probably for about a year. I had read several books about... Uh, like George Hackenschmidt, I had read his uh, life, how to live and strength and health. And that's a book that's his philosophy of training, but it also the last half of that book or more was his autobiography. So I had read a little bit about Hackenschmidt, but I knew almost next to nothing about Muldoon when I wrote about his life in 2014. I knew that in a book I had read on John L. Sullivan, that Sullivan supposedly feared Muldoon, and I knew Muldoon had trained Sullivan for a fight he would have definitely lost if not for Muldoon's training, and that was his last big bare-knuckle contest with Jake Kilrain. Going in, I, I discovered that he was actually a very dominant world champion in Greco-Roman wrestling. He won the Greco-Roman World Heavyweight Championship in 1880, and he was the undefeated world heavyweight wrestling champion for the next nine years and that title was contested only in greco-roman wrestling and he also defeated some of the other top wrestlers he would wrestle other wrestlers in their specialty of cornish wrestling or collar and elbow or back hold but the one knock i would say against muldoon is muldoon would not wrestle the great catch wrestlers like joe acton evan strangler lewis in their specialty of catch wrestling, not even a single fall, because he was always worried he would get caught with a submission or a hook that he didn't understand and would get injured and, and lose his title. So that's the one knock I would have against him as a wrestler. But other than that, he was a very dominating world heavyweight champion. And he was probably even more famous for the next 30 years after that as a celebrity trainer, 
and as one of the first New York State Athletic Commissioners that came from a combat sport. And I published that book in mid-2014. The next combat sports book I wrote was on uh, John Morrissey, who was the bare-knuckle prize-fighting champion in the United States in the 1870s. And I just found Morrissey's story fascinating. And the name of that book was Morrissey versus Poole, Politics, Prize Fighting, and the Murder of Bill the Butcher. So if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, Bill the Butcher, Poole, that character, or Bill the Butcher, the character in the show, is based on the real-life person, Bill the Butcher Poole, although Poole died about 20 years before that movie was set. And I found it to be a great story about redemption and having your reputation tarnished on a murder that you weren't a part of and how he used his later forays in as an uh, alderman and then as a state senator to kind of make up for some of the worst things or some of the bad things that he had been involved in when he was younger. So that's still one of my favorite books that I've written. It's the only one I've ever done on boxing or bare knuckle prize fighting, and it may remain that way. I may write a book one day on Stanley Ketchell, who was a very dominating world middleweight champion, who was killed in Missouri in uh, the 19-teens when he was only 24 or 25. He was shot by a farmhand, but that's the only other boxing book I'll probably ever write. Then the second pro wrestling book I wrote was on Evan the Strangler Lewis, and it was Evan Strangler Lewis, the most feared wrestler of the 19th century. And I didn't know much about Lewis either, other than he was a skilled submission wrestler who William Muldoon would not meet and catch wrestling. I read a lot about Lewis uh, when I was researching the William Muldoon book because Lewis was the last significant opponent for Muldoon. Researching and writing that book, I realized how dominant a catch wrestler Lewis was and how other wrestlers feared him because he had a vicious mean streak. He would get mad during matches where he was going to work with the person and legitimately injure them. And if you were in a contest with him, you were always in danger of being caught with a submission and injured. And one of the most significant things I've discovered from a scholarship per, uh, perspective is most people, I'm, well, I know most people that have written about him thought that Evan Strangler U.S. Evan the Strangler Lewis used a rear naked choke or a Mata Leon or whatever name you want to call it. The sleeper hold is what it looks like in professional wrestling if you've ever seen that, but it's that's not the way it's used correctly. The correct way is the arm goes behind the head and you squeeze the neck that way. That is not the hold that he used. The strangle hold was actually the guillotine. A choke or some, what they called it in wrestling sometimes was a front face lock, although this front face lock was used to cut off the carotid artery.
So that was the actual stranglehold that Evan Lewis used, not the Monteleone. And uh, Lewis, Frank Gotch had a mean streak, but nobody that I've ever researched or written about had the mean streak that Evan the Strangler Lewis had. He was a vicious, vicious wrestler. So my next project after the Evan, the Strangler Lewis book is probably the book that is, I still am most famous for writing. And this was Gotch versus Hackenschmidt. The matches that made and destroyed legitimate American professional wrestling. And going into that project, I was a big fan of Hackenschmidt. I had read his book, How to Live in Health and Strength. And I was really impressed with his autobiography. And I had seen in the 1990s a documentary on A&E called The Unreal Story of Professional Wrestling, where Luthez told a story that Ad Santel, whose real name was uh, Adolph Ernst, and who had been a training partner and sort of a protege of Hackenschmidt, he had told the story that Frank Gotch paid him $5,000 to injure Hackenschmidt before their rematch in 1911. The first match between Gotch and Hackenschmidt was 1908. The rematch between Gotch and Hackenschmidt was Labor Day 1911. And going into this book, I believe those stories. I did not have a great deal of respect for Frank Gotch, but I wanted to be impartial and do as thorough and complete a history as I could without bringing a bunch of bias into it. So I really worked hard to try to look at things rationally. And I ended up coming out of that, uh, writing that book with a lot more respect for Frank Gotch, not because I was really trying to be fair and even handed with both of them, but because I don't believe a lot of the stories that surround all of these matches. And I detail in the book, and I've even talked about it a few times here before, but I detail in the book the research I found and why I don't believe a lot of the legends that have come up around this these matches. And really, there isn't that many stories around the first match. All the stories are around the second match. And it's because of the stories Ed Santel told Luthez, which Luthez told in that documentary. And I think he might have even in, uh, included it in his autobiography. And also because of the stories about that second match that were in The Fall Guy by Marcus Griffin, which is one of the few books we have on early professional wrestling. It was published in 1937, 26 years after that second match. And it's based on the memory of Jack Curley, who was involved with that second match. And I show in the book why I don't believe any of the, the legends around that. So I've also written a blog post on the website. If you just uh, go on to kensermanjr.com, and just do a search for second gotch hack match. I talk about why I don't believe some of those legends. I address Ad Santel's legend uh, that I don't believe either in that uh, in the book itself. So coming out of the, that book, I actually had respect for both of the wrestlers, not just Hackenschmidt, 
uh, going into that. The next uh, one is Mass Marvel to the Rescue, the gimmick that saved the 1950 New York International Wrestling Tournament. By the time I wrote that book, I had been researching that tournament for about five or six years while I was doing the other projects. So I knew a lot more going into that than I did some of the other book projects I had started. But when I initially started looking into the tournament, I had heard Larry Matisic talk about the first Mass Marvel and his entry in the 1950-1915-15 International Wrestling Tournament many, many times when I was growing up. And I always kind of had it in the back of my mind, I'm going to look that up one day and go back to the old newspaper archives and read about all of that. Well, the first thing I discovered was it wasn't one tournament. It was two tournaments. It was a spring tournament and it was a fall tournament. And Sam Rockman, the promoter who put it on, was doing his best to replace Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch had retired in 1913. Nobody had really taken up that mantle yet. And Rockman wanted to, he thought he had the perfect person to take up the mantle of world champion in Alexander Alex Aberg, who was a Greco-Roman wrestling specialist. So both of those tournaments, originally, the first, well, the first tournament was all Greco-Roman wrestling. The second tournament started out in the fall, started out as all Greco-Roman wrestling. But the novelty of that style, which wasn't popular in America anymore, had kind of worn off. So they started enter, uh, introducing catch wrestling matches as well. They got Ed Strangler Lewis and a couple of other big names to start wrestling in the tournament. But none of that really helped until they seated a mass wrestler at ringside in early December. So the spring tournament went from March to the first week of June. The fall tournament started in October and went till the end of December. But it, the fall tournament was going to be a financial disaster until they introduced the Mass Marvel at ringside in early December. He demands to wrestle, and he does. they do let him enter the tournament, and he does very well for the first several weeks until his real identity is exposed in the newspapers. And between his identity being exposed in the newspapers and a subsequent court case, I would say this was the first significant major exposure of the worked nature of a lot of professional wrestling. <clears throat> a lot of this tournament was actually not worked. In the spring tournament, other than the matches between Aberg and his mentor, I think all of those matches were pretty much legitimate Greco-Roman wrestling contests. When they started having the financial difficulties during the fall tournament, then they started introducing catch wrestling. They also started introducing work matches. And it was no doubt that the matches with the Mass Marvel were worked because he would have never been able to beat the names he beat had that not been. So if you're interested in... And I also cover... The person who did replace Gotch in everybody's mind was wrestling that same summer, but not in New York. So I kind of cover those stories in parallel. My next project was kind of a foray into 
It was the first book I wrote that was completely set in the worked era. So the book starts in about 1920. And it's Double-crossing the Gold Dust Trio, Stanislaus Zbysko's Last Hurrah. And the reason I wrote about this one was even though most of the matches in this era were worked, there were several famous shoot contests. Well, they weren't shoot contests. They were very famous double-crosses in one shoot contest that occurred during this era. And so I went into great detail, and I also expose what I think are some of the, the myths around these. And one of the big myths that I think the book sets straight is the reason that they took the title off of Stanislaus Zbysko. Let me back up just a second to set this up, and then you might understand what I'm saying as I'm going forward. Stanislaus Zbysko left the United States in 1914, which is actually my next project after this one, but and because of the war in Europe where he got stuck, he went back to Europe to join the Polish army. He got stuck in Europe and was in a prisoner of war camp, and he did not get back to the United States until 1922. I'm sorry, 1921. But midway through 1922, they put the World Heavyweight Championship on Zabisco, and he is the champion for the next 10 or 11 months. And it was where all these matches were worked. In early uh, 1923, I'm sorry, I've got all my, my dates jumbled here. But let's back it up just a second. He came to the United States in late 1920, early 1921. A senator helped him who was uh, interested in promoting a Polish relief fund helped get Zabisco out of Europe and back to the United States, where he had been trying to do for the last two years. His brother Vladek had wrestled in the United States all through the war. In early 1921, he arrives. He's supposed to wrestle with the Curly organization. He gets crossways with them for a couple months, but it all gets straightened out. And in 1921, he, the, the, Ed Strangler-Lewis drops the World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship to him. Okay. 1921, not 1922. In the spring of 1922, Zabisco drops the belt back to Lewis. And one of the stories has always been that the reason they took the belt back from Zabisco was because he was not, he was not a very colorful champion and fans did not come out to see him wrestle. And that's one of the things I disproved in this book. That wasn't really correct. Lewis has the title, and Lewis is the champion for three years until his manager, promoter, Billy Sandow, sees money in a, a wrestler who is strictly a performer by the name of Big Wayne Munn, who had been a star football player, but who is not a legitimate wrestler. So a legitimate wrestler could easily shoot on him and take the title. So Sandow tries to protect the belt by only letting Munn wrestle people he trusts. And one of the people he trusts is Stanislaw Zbysko, who in April of 1925 pulls probably the most famous double cross 
in wrestling history. Only the Montreal Screwjob may be a more famous double cross, but in the 1920s, and they were probably still talking about it in the 30s, there was no more famous double cross than Zabisco's double cross of Munn. However, most of the things that you've heard about that double cross were not correct. Um, I found news, several newspaper uh, write-ups from the Pennsylvania papers that have cleared some of that up now, and that's all what actually happened in that match and afterwards is all written up in that book. And then the book continues on with Stecker and Lewis's match to settle the promotional war in 1928 because the ensuing three years after the double cross were very bad for wrestling because fans were confused about, you know, there was divided titles and it was just a big mess. So that book really covered Zabisco's second wrestling career in the United States from about 1920 till he retired after dropping the title to Stecker in 25. I wanted to cover Zabisco's first uh, run in the United States, which was from 1909 to 1914. So the next project was Gotch versus Zabisco and it was the one opponent Frank Gotch feared and the reason I say that is early in Zabisco's run so when Zabisco came here Emil Clank Gotch's manager had recruited him to be an opponent for Frank Gotch and they had a build up to a match in June of 1910 which Gotch won, but he won it with one of the most famous unsportsmanlike moves to start a wrestling match in history. And then, after losing or after beating Zabisco, he absolutely refused to ever wrestle Zabisco again, even though Zabisco was in the United States for four more years and Gotch was wrestling for three more years. One of the things that surprised me in that book was how many of Frank Gotch's matches were worked after the second uh, Hackenschmidt match. I had not picked up on that in the other project, but really going in-depth into his career in 1912 and 1913, I was shocked at how few contests Gotch was wrestling at the end of his career. And then the final book that I've written so far on wrestling history is Shooting or Working, the History of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. In that book, I knew quite a bit about some of the title holders, but I was a little surprised. I shouldn't have been. I've said many times, wrestling has been worked since the very beginning. It wasn't all works. There were a lot of legitimate contests, but it was worked from the very beginning. And there were a lot of worked matches in the 19th century and then in the 1900s. Many of those title matches were worked. Not all. A lot were contests, and I talk about those. And I don't, I do not believe that uh, Tom Jenkins ever wrestled a worked match.
but he was about the only one. Almost everybody else that had held the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship had worked matches, and most of them had worked title matches. So that book goes in pretty in-depth, and it also tightens up the time frame. The old time frame for when that title was a viable title was from 19, or I'm sorry, 1880 to 1922, and my window is much shorter than that. Well, much shorter. That's eh, about 10 to 12 years shorter than that, whether you consider that much or not. And my next book project I haven't settled on yet, but it's probably going to be on a wrestler who worked primarily in the worked area, but did work in the worked time frame. So it'll be my second book that's primarily set after 1915. But the, the wrestler involved wrestled several very famous shoot contests and also double-crossed a few people. So stay tuned for more. I know that was kind of a quick overview, and I missed the punchline on Z Gotch versus Zabisco. So Gotch versus Zabisco, I believe that if Frank Gotch would have wrestled Zabisco, from 1911 on, he would have lost to Zabisco. And when I've written the top legitimate American uh, wrestlers who ever wrestled in America during the legitimate era, Zabisco is always near the top of the list because Ed Strangler Lewis said even in his 40s, Stanislaw Zabisco is the only wrestler besides uh, Joseph Tootsmont that he thought could give him a contest. And he did give Frank Gotch a contest. Gotch won their first one, and then Gotch wouldn't wrestle him again. I think that if he had wrestled Gotch again and had defeated him, he could have made a case for being the best legitimate wrestler ever in America. But that didn't happen, but he's definitely still in the top three. So I went back and covered up my punchline there. For the reviews... Obviously, I don't have Caleb and uh, even my cousin Dan with me this week, but I do have a match to recommend, and if you go to the show notes at kensermanjr.com slash episode 17, I'll have a link in the show notes for this match. There's a match I just discovered on YouTube. It's about 12 to 14 minutes long, and it's still pretty much intact, and it's a world heavyweight wrestling uh, match between... Jim Londis and Bronco Nagurski from 1938. And it will dispel a lot of the myths and rumors you hear from people about people laying in headlocks for two hours and stuff like that. You're not going to see that in this match. I have not seen that in many matches. Now, it did happen back in the legitimate era, and it happened for one of two reasons. One, the person just couldn't get out of it, and the other person was trying to wear them down. And what normally a headlock. It'd be a crossbody or something like that where they were literally trying to hold their opponent down. Or they were working and they were legitimately waiting for one of the darker aspects of early pro wrestling is there was a lot of gambling around that. And the wrestlers and the promoters would take part in the gambling on these worked matches where they already knew the outcome. So once they had milked everybody in the crowd... Then they would come out of the hold and they would finish the match. So that's these long rest holds you hear about really didn't occur. 
during the worked era where there was no gambling and they weren't that they weren't all that often in the legitimate contest area or the worked area where people were trying to uh, fleece the gamblers. So 1938, Jim Londis versus Bronco Nagurski. It's about 12 to 14 minutes, and it's better than most of the stuff you'll see today. Well, that's it for this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. In the next episode, which will be released on Monday, January 23rd, uh, 2023. I can't believe it's 2023 already. Happy New Year to everybody. We will be covering one of the early uh, shoot contests of John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. I think I've gone into some of them in the past, but I was going to go more in depth. The only way that will not be the topic is if my cousin comes back up in the next couple of weeks and I'm able to get both he and Caleb in the studio at the same time. Other than that, come back for some historic wrestling next month. And I hope you guys have a great uh, 2023. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.